0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. I've got a wonderful bedtime story for you tonight. And before we get to it, I just want to say um, that Sleepy has taken A really exciting step this year. The show is now a part of the Airwave Network, which I'm really excited about. Um, It's the first time I've been with the network. Um, They're really wonderful to work with. And I get to stay independent as a producer and still make the show how I want to. The show that you love listening to. And um, they're going to be helping the show reach new listeners. So... really happy about this um the show itself is not going to change at all for you it's always going to be free with now over 200 hours of sleepy content which is wild um the only difference which you might have heard uh in last week's episode is that there will be ads in the beginning of the show that are in my voice which i know is a little weird to hear it's a little weird for me too but just so you know, um, you know, you can totally just fast-forward through these with a couple of taps on that fast-forward button on your podcast app to get right to your bedtime reading. Again, the show will always be free, and um, this move, for me, maybe having an ad in the beginning of the show makes a really, really huge difference in my life as an independent producer um, and it's been a long time coming, so I hope you understand. I will keep bringing you the bedtime stories you love, as always, and I super, super appreciate you continuing to let me read you to sleep. Also, with this new change, um, I'm making a completely ad-free version of Sleepy, available to patrons of the show for two dollars a month, um, and I'm working on getting that up and running right now. And hopefully it'll be live in the next couple of weeks. So if you'd like to listen to Sleepy completely ad-free, you will be able to go onto patreon.com slash sleepy pledge $2 and get completely ad-free Sleepy while also being a part of making this show. It's also a really good place to send me a message and just say, hey, I would love to hear from you. So keep an eye out for that. I'll be announcing it on the show as soon as I get it live. Alright, I've been yapping long enough, but thank you so, so much for listening and for understanding. I am very excited to bring you another year of super snoozy bedtime stories. So thank you. And now I get to thank some of our brand new patrons on patreon.com. Teresa, Laura Bolatino, Jillian Sage, Amanda Schmidt, and a very special sleepy birthday shout-out to Fawn from Eric. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com which like I mentioned earlier is um, that's the site you can go on and subscribe to the ad free uh, podcast in the coming weeks but basically if you just like this show if, you, if it helps you get a better night's rest and you want your name read in the opening credits of it uh, just go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donate even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way and uh, I would love to have you as an integral part of making this show. So again, that's patreon.com sleepyradio Radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, again, happy second week of your new year. Um, this month, as I mentioned in the last episode, is kind of like a Christmas morning a bit for the Sleepy Podcast because a whole bunch of new books enter the public domain every year, which is really exciting in the most nerdy way possible. So, um... A lot of great stuff entered the public domain this year, and tonight I'm going to be reading one of those stories that just did. And it's a story from an author I've read many times on the show, who I really love reading, um, and that's Edith Nesbit. The difference with this story, though, is um, I actually find it really, really boring. Um, mostly because it's kind of about, um, socialites in New York, uh, kind of the same way that Jane Austen writes about socialites in England, and, uh, while it is incredibly beautiful writing, um, both Jane Austen and Edith in this story, I just, uh, I really don't care (laughs) about, uh... Uh, lives that much, and about um, the problems that they actually have in the story, <laughs> and the, uh, the kind of little um, petty feuds they have with each other, I don't really care, but I really do love reading it, and listening to it, because, again, the writing is astounding. Everything I've read from Edith Nesbitt has been um, writing that feels Way ahead of its time. And this story tonight is no exception. So tonight, I hope you can snooze super deeply to Twilight Sleep. A story by Edith Nesbitt. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just tight like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 Miss Bruss, the perfect secretary, received Nona Manford at the door of her mother's boudoir. The office, Mrs. Manford's children called it, with a gesture of the kindliest denial. She wants to, you know, dear. Your mother always wants to see you, pleaded Maisie Bruss in a voice which seemed to be thinned and sharpened by continuous telephoning. Miss Bruss, attached to Mrs. Manford's service and shortly after the latter's second marriage, had known Nona from her childhood and was privileged, even now that she was out, to treat her with a certain benevolent familiarity, benevolence being the note of the Manford household. But look at her list, just for this morning. The secretary continued, handing over a tall Morocco-framed tablet on which was inscribed in the colorless secretarial hand. 7.30, Mental Uplift 7.45, Breakfast 8.00, Psychoanalysis 8.15, C. Cook 8.30, Silent Meditation 8.45, Facial Massage 9. Man with Persian Miniatures 9.15. Correspondence 9.30. Manicure 9.45. Eurythmic Exercises 10. Hair Waved 10.15. Sit for Bust 10.30. Receive Mother's Day Deputation 11.00. Dancing lesson, 1130, birth control committee at Mrs., the manicure is there now, late as usual, that's what martyrizes your mother, everybody's being so unpunctual, this New York life is killing her, I'm not unpunctual, said Nona Manford, leaning in the doorway, no, and a miracle too. The way you girls keep up your dancing all night. You and Lita, what times you two do have. Miss Bruss was becoming almost maternal. But just run your eye down that list. You see, your mother didn't expect to see you before lunch now, did she? Nona shook her head. No, but you might perhaps squeeze me in. It was said in a friendly, reasonable tone. On both sides, the matter was being examined with an evident desire for impartiality and goodwill. Nona was used to her mother's engagements, used to being squeezed in between faith healers, art dealers, social service workers, and manicures. When Mrs. Manford did see her children, she was perfect to them. But in this killing New York life, with its ever-multiplying duties and responsibilities, if her family had been allowed to tumble in at all hours and devour time, her nervous system simply couldn't have stood it, and how many duties would have been left undone. Mrs. Manford's motto had always been, there's a time for everything. But there were moments when this optimistic view failed her and she began to think there wasn't. This morning, for instance, as Miss Bruss pointed out, she had had to tell the new French sculptor, who had been all the rage in New York for the last month, that she wouldn't be able to sit for him for more than 15 minutes on account of the birth control committee meeting at 11.30. Ah, Mrs. Nona seldom assisted at these meetings her own time, being through force of habit rather than real inclination, so fully taken up with exercise, athletics, and the ceaseless rush from thrill to thrill, which was supposed to be the happy privilege of youth. But she had had glimpses enough of the scene, of the audience of bright elderly women with snowy hair, the rhythmic movements, and finely wrinkled over massaged faces, on which a smile glassy benevolence sat like their rimless prince's nest. They were all inexorably earnest, aimlessly kind and fathomlessly pure, and all rather too well-dressed, except the prominent woman of the occasion, who usually wore dowdy clothes and had steel-rimmed spectacles and straggling wisps of hair. Whatever the question dealt with, these ladies always seemed to be the same and always advocated with equal zeal, birth control, and unlimited maternity, free love, or the return to the traditions of the American home. And neither they nor Mrs. Manford seemed aware that there was anything contradictory in these doctrines. All they knew was that they were determined to force certain persons to do things that those persons preferred not to do. Nona, glancing down the serried list, recalled a saying of her mother's former husband, Arthur Wyant. Your mother and her friends would like to teach the whole world how to say its prayers and brush its teeth. The girl had laughed as she could never help laughing at Wyant's sallies. But in reality, she admired her mother's zeal, though she sometimes wondered if it were not a little too promiscuous. Nona was the daughter of Mrs. Manford's second marriage, and her own father, Dexter Manford, who had had to make his way in the world, had taught her to revere activity as a virtue in itself. His tone in speaking of Pauline's zeal was very different from Wyant's. He had been brought up to think there was virtue in work, per se, even if it served no more useful purpose than the revolving of a squirrel in a wheel. Perhaps your mother tries to cover too much ground, but it's very fine of her, you know. She never spares herself. Nor us. Nona sometimes felt tempted to add. But Manford's admiration was contagious. Yes, Nona did admire her mother's altruistic energy. But she knew well enough that neither she nor her brother's wife, Lita, would ever follow such an example. She no more than Lita. They belonged to another generation. To the bewildered, disenchanted young people who had grown up since the Great War whose energies were more spasmodic and less definitely directed, and who, above all, wanted a more personal outlet for them. "'Bother earthquakes in Bolivia,' Lita had once whispered to Nona, when Mrs. Manford had convoked the bright elderly women to deal with a seismic disaster at the other end of the world. The repetition of which these ladies somehow felt could be avoided that they sent out a commission immediately to teach the Bolivians to do something they didn't want to do, not to believe in earthquakes, for instance. The young people certainly felt no corresponding desire to set the houses of others in order. Why shouldn't the Bolivians have earthquakes if they chose to live in Bolivia? And why must Pauline Manford lie awake over in New York and have to learn a new set of Mahatma exercises to dispel the resulting wrinkles. I suppose if we feel like that, it's really because we're too lazy to care, none reflected with her incorrigible honesty. She turned from Miss Bruss with a slight shrug. Oh well, she murmured. You know, pet, Miss Bruss volunteered, Things always get worse as the season goes on, and the last fortnight in February is the worst of all, especially with Easter coming as early as it does this year. I never could see why they picked out such an awkward date for Easter. Perhaps those Florida hotel people did it. Why? Your poor mother wasn't even able to see your father this morning before he went downtown. Though she thinks it's all wrong, to let him go to his office like that, without finding time for a quiet little chat first. Just a cheery word to put him in the right mood for the day. Oh, by the way, my dear, I wonder if you happen to have heard him saying he's dining at home tonight. Because, you know, he never does remember to leave word about his plans. And if he hasn't, I'd better telephone to the office to remind him that it's the night of the big dinner for the Marchesa. Well, I don't think father's dining at home, said the girl indifferently. Not, 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 oh my gracious, clucked Miss Bruss, dashing across the room to the telephone on her own private desk. The engagement list had slipped from her hands, and Nona Manford, picking it up, ran her glance over it. She read 4 p.m., C.A. 4:30 p.m. Musical, Torfried love 4 p.m., C.A. No had been almost sure it was Mrs. Manford's day for going to see her divorced husband, Arthur Wyatt, the effaced, mysterious person always designated on Mrs. Manford's list as A. And hence known to her children as Exhibit A. It was rather a bore, for Nona had meant to go and see him herself at about that hour, and she always timed her visit so that they should not clash with Mrs. Manford's, not because the latter disapproved of Nona's friendship with Arthur Wyatt, she thought it beautiful of the girl to show him such kindness, but because Wyatt Nona. Or agree that on these occasions the presence of the former Mrs. Wyatt spoilt their fun. But there was nothing to do about it. Mrs. Manford's plans were unchangeable. Even illness and death barely caused a ripple in them. One might as well have tried to bring down one of the pyramids by poking it with a parasol as an attempt to disarrange the close mosaic of Mrs. Manford's engagement list. Mrs. Manford herself couldn't have done it, not with the best will in the world. And Mrs. Manford's will, as her children and all her household knew, was the best in the world. Nona Manford moved away with a final shrug, she had wanted to speak to her mother about something rather important, something she had caught a startled glimpse of the evening before in the queer little half-formed mind of her sister-in-law, Lita, the wife of her half-brother, Jim Wyant, the Lita with whom, as Miss Bruss remarked, she, Nona, danced away the nights. There was nobody on earth as dear to Nona as that same Jim, her elder by six or seven years, and who had been brother, comrade, guardian, almost father to her. Her own father, Dexter Manford, who was so clever, capable, and kind, being almost always too busy at the office or too firmly requisitioned by Mrs. Manford when he was at home to be able to spare such time for his daughter. Jim, bless him, always had time. No doubt, that was what his mother meant when she called him lazy. As lazy as his father, she had once added, with one of her rare flashes of impatience. Nothing so conduced to impatience in Mrs. Manford as the thought of anybody as having the least fraction of unapportioned time and not immediately planning to do something with it. If only they could have given it to her. And Jim, who loved and admired her, as all her family did, was always conscientiously trying to fill his days, or to conceal from her their occasional vacuity. But he had a way of not being in a hurry, and this had been all to the good for little Nona, who could always count on him to ride or walk with her, to slip off with her to a concert or a movie, or more pleasantly still, just to be there, idling in the big untenanted library of Cedar Lenge, the place in the country, or in his untidy study on the third floor of the townhouse, and ready to answer questions, help her look up hard words in dictionaries, mend her golf sticks, or get a thorn out of her Selaham's paw. Jim was wonderful with his hands. And he could repair clocks, start up mechanical toys, make fascinating models of houses or gardens, apply a tourniquet, scramble legs, mimic his mother's visitors, preferably the earnest ones who held forth about causes or messages in her gilded drawing rooms, and make delicious colored maps of imaginary continents concerning which Nona wrote interminable stories. And all these gifts he had, alas, made no particular use as yet, except to enchant his little half sister. It had been just the same, Nona knew, with his father. Poor, useless Exhibit A. Mrs. Manford said it was their old New York blood. She spoke of them with mingled contempt and pride, as if they were the last of the Capetians exhausted by a thousand years of sovereignty. Her own red corpsicles were tinged with a more plebeian dye. Her progenitors had mined in Pennsylvania and made bicycles an exploit and now gave their name to one of the most popular automobiles in the United States. Not that other ingredients were lacking in her hereditary makeup, Her mother was said to have contributed southern geniality by being a Pascal of Tallahassee. Mrs. Manford, in certain words, spoke of the Pascals of Tallahassee as if they accounted for all that was noblest in her. But when she was exhorting Jim to action, it was her father's blood that she invoked. After all, In spite of the Pascal tradition, there is no shame in being in trade. My father's father came over from Scotland with two sixpences in his pocket. And Mrs. Manford would glance with pardonable pride at the glorious Gainsborough over the dining room mantelpiece, which she sometimes almost mistook for an ancestral portrait and at her healthy, handsome family sitting about the dinner table, laden with Georgian silver and orchids from her own hothouses. From the threshold, Nona called back to Miss Bruss. Please tell Mother I shall probably be lunching with Jim and Lita. But Miss Bruss was passionately saying to an unseen interlocutor, Oh, but Mr. Wrigley but you must make Mr. Manford understand that Mrs. Manford counts on him for dinner this evening. The dinner dance for the Marchesa, you know. The marriage of her half-brother had been Nona Manford's first real sorrow, not that she had disapproved of his choice. How could anyone take that funny, irresponsible little Lita Cliff seriously enough to disprove of her? The sisters-in-law were soon the best of friends. If Nona had a fault to find with Lita, it was that she didn't worship the incomparable Jim as blindly as her sister did. But then Lita was made to be worshipped, not to worship. That was manifest in the calm gaze of her long, narrow, nut-colored eyes, in the erratic fixity of her lovely smile, in the very shape of her hands, so slim yet dimpled, Hands which had never grown up and which drooped from her wrists as if listlessly waiting to be kissed, or lay like rare shells or upcurved magnolia petals on the cushions luxuriously piled about her indolent body. The Jim Wyans had been married for nearly two years now. The baby was six months old. The pair were beginning to be regarded as one of the old couples of their set one of the settled landmarks in the matrimonial quicksands of New York. Nona's love for her brother was too disinterested for her not to rejoice in this. Above all things, she wanted her old Jim to be happy, and happy she was sure he was, or had been until lately. The mere getting away from Mrs. Manford's iron rule had been a greater relief than he himself perhaps guessed. And then he was still the foremost of Lita's worshippers, still enchanted by the childish whims, the unpunctuality, the irresponsibility which made life with her such a thrillingly unsettled business after the clockwork routine of his mother's perfect establishment. All this, Nona rejoiced him, but she ached at times with the loneliness of the perfect establishment, now that Jim, its one disturbing element, had left. Jim guessed her loneliness she was sure. It was he who encouraged the growing intimacy between his wife and his half-sister, and tried to make the latter feel that this house was another home to her. Lita had always been amiably disposed toward Nona. The two, though so fundamentally different, were nearly of an age, and united by the prevailing passion for every form of sport. Lita, in spite of her soft, curled-up attitudes, was not only a tireless dancer, but a brilliant, if uncertain, tennis player, and an adventurous rider to hounds. Between her hours of lolling and smoking amber-scented cigarettes, every moment of her life was crammed with dancing, riding, or games. During the two or three months before the baby's birth, when Lita had been reduced to partial inactivity, Nona had rather feared that her perpetual craving for new thrills might lead to some insidious form of time-killing some of the drinking or drugging that went on among the young women of their set. Belita had sunk into a state of smiling animal patience as if the mysterious work going on in her tender young body had a sacred significance for her and it was enough to lie still and let it happen. All she asked was that nothing should hurt her. She had the blind dread of physical pain common also to most of the young women of her set. But all that was so easily managed nowadays, Mrs. Manford, who took charge of the business, Lita being an orphan, of course knew the most perfect twilight sleep establishment in the country, installed Lita in its most luxurious suite, and filled her rooms with spring flowers, hothouse fruits, new novels, and all the latest picture papers. And Lita drifted into motherhood as lightly and unperceivingly as if the wax doll which suddenly appeared in the cradle or her bedside had been brought there in one of the big bunches of hothouse roses that she found every morning on her pillow. Of course there ought to be no pain, nothing but beauty. It ought to be one of the loveliest, most poetic things in the world to have a baby, Mrs. Manford declared, in that bright, efficient voice which made loveliness and poetry sound like the attributes of an advanced industrialism, and babies something to be turned out in series like Ford's. And Jim's joy in his son had been unbounded, and Lita really hadn't minded in the least. Chapter 2 The Marchesa was something which happened at irregular but inevitable moments in Mrs. Manford's life. Most people would have regarded the Marchesa as a disturbance, some as a distinct inconvenience, the pessimistic as a misfortune. It was a matter of conscious pride to Mrs. Manford that, while recognizing these elements in the case, she had always contrived to make out of it something not only showy but even enviable. For after all, if your husband, even an ex-husband, has a first cousin called Amalassunta delle Ducci di Lucera, who has married the Marchesi Venturino di San Fidele of one of the great Neapolitan families, it seems stupid and wasteful not to make some use of such a conjunction of names and situations, and to remember only, as the Wyans did, that when Amalasunta came to New York, it was always to get money, or to get her dreadful son out of a new scrape, or to consult the family lawyers as to some new way of guarding the remains of her fortune against Venturino's systematic depredations. Mrs. Manford knew in advance the hopelessness of these quests, all of them, that is, except that which consisted in borrowing money from herself. She always let Amalusuntha two or three thousand dollars, and put it down to the profit and loss column of her carefully kept private accounts. She even gave the Marchesa her own last year's clothes, cleverly retouched, and in return she expected Amalasunta to shed on the Manford Entertainments that exotic luster which the near relative of a duke who is also a grandee of Spain and a great dignitary of the papal court trails with her through the dustiest byways, even if her mother has been a mere Mary Wyant of Albany. Mrs. Manford had been successful. The Marchesa, without taking thought, fell naturally into the part assigned to her, in her stormy and uncertain life, New York, where her rich relations lived and from which she always came back with a few thousand dollars and clothes that could be made to last a year and good advice about putting the screws on Venturino was like a foretaste of heaven. Live there? Karina, no. It is too, too uneventful as heaven must be. But everybody is celestially kind, and Venturino has learned that there are certain things my American relations will not tolerate. Such was Amalasuntha's version of her visits to New York, when she recounted them in the drawing-rooms of Rome, Naples, or St. Moritz, whereas in New York, quite carelessly and unthinkingly, for no one was simpler at heart than Amalasuntha. She pronounced names and raised suggestions which cast a romantic glow of unreality over a world bounded by Wall Street on the South and Long Island in most other directions. And in this glow, Pauline Manford was always eager to sun her other guests. My husband's cousin, become, since the divorce from Wyant's my son's cousin, was still, after 27 years, a useful social card. The Marchesa di San Fedele, now a woman of 50, was still, in Pauline's sap, a pretext for dinners, a means of paying off social scores, a small but steady luminary in the uncertain New York heavens. Pauline could never see her rather forlorn wisp of a figure, always clothed in careless, unnoticeable black, even when she wore Mrs. Manford's old dresses, without a vision of echoing Roman staircases, of the torchlit arrival of cardinals at the Lucera receptions, of a great fresco like background of popes, princes, dilapidated palaces, cypress guarded villas, scandals, tragedies, and interminable feuds about inheritances. It's all so dreadful. The wicked lives those great Roman families led. After all, poor Amelasuntha has good American blood in her. Her mother was a Wyatt. Yes, Mary Wyatt married Prince Ottaviano de Lago Negro, the Duke of Lucera's son, who used to be at the Italian legation in Washington. But what is Amalasunta to do? In a country where there is no divorce and a woman just has to put up with everything. The Pope has been most kind. He sides entirely with Amalasunta. But Venturino's people are very powerful too. A great Neapolitan family, yes. Cardinal Ravallo is Venturino's uncle. So that, altogether. It's been dreadful for Amalusuntha, and such an oasis to her, coming back to her own people. Pauline Manford was quite sincere in believing that it was dreadful for Amalasunta. Pauline herself could conceive of nothing more shocking than a social organization which should not recognize divorce and let all kinds of domestic evils fester undisturbed instead of having people's lives disinfected. And whitewashed at regular intervals, like the cellar. But while Mrs. Manford thought all this, in fact, in the very act of thinking it, she remembered that Cardinal Ravello, Venturino's uncle, had been mentioned as one of the probable delegates to the Roman Catholic Congress, which was to meet at Baltimore that winter, and wondered whether an evening party for his eminence could not be organized with Amalasuntha's help, even got as far as considering the effect of torch-bearing footmen in silk stockings lining the Manford staircase, which was of marble, thank goodness, and of Dexter, Manford, and Jim receiving the prints of the church on the doorstep and walking upstairs backward carrying silver candelabra, though Pauline wasn't sure she could persuade them to go as far as that. Pauline felt no more inconsistency in this double train of thought than she did in shuddering at the crimes of the Roman church and longing to receive one of its dignitaries with all the proper ceremonial. She was used to such rapid adjustments and proud of the fact that whole categories of contradictory opinions lay down together in her mind as peacefully as the happy families exhibited by strolling circuses. And of course, if the cardinal did come to her house, she would show her American independence by inviting also the Bishop of New York, her own Episcopal Bishop, and possibly the Chief Rabbi, also a friend of hers. And certainly that wonderful, much-slandered Mahatma, in whom she still so thoroughly believed. But the word pulled her up short, Yes, certainly, she believed in Mahatma. She had every reason to. Standing before the tall, three-fold mirror in her dressing room, she glanced into the huge bathroom beyond, which looked like a biological laboratory, with its white tiles, polished pipes, weighing machines, mysterious appliances, gymnastics and physical culture, and recalled with gratitude that it was certainly those arrhythmic exercises of the Mahatma's holy ecstasy, he called them, which had reduced her hips after everything else had failed. And this gratitude for the reduction of her hips was exactly on the same plane in her neat, card cataloged mind with her enthusiastic faith in this wonderful mystical teachings about self-annihilation, interior existence, and astral affinities. also incomprehensible, and so pure. Yes, she would certainly ask the Mahatma. It would do the Cardinal good to have a talk with him. She could almost hear his Eminence saying in a voice shaken by emotion, Mrs. Manfred, I want to thank you for making me know that wonderful man, if it hadn't been for you. Ah, she did like people who said to her, if it hadn't been for you. The telephone on her dressing table rang. Miss Bruss had switched on from the boudoir. Mrs. Manford, as she unhooked the receiver, cast a nervous glance at the clock. She was already seven minutes late for her Marcel waving, and, ah, it was Dexter's voice automatically she composed her face to a wifely smile and her voice to a corresponding intonation. Yes, Pauline, dear. Oh, about dinner tonight? Why, you know Amal Asunto. You say you're going to the theater with Jim and Lita. But, Dexter, you can't. They're dining here. Jim and Lita are. But, of course. Yes, it must have been a mistake. Lita's so flighty, I know. The smile grew a little pinched. The voice echoed it, then patiently. Yes, what else? Oh, oh, Dexter. What do you mean? The Mahatma. What? I don't understand. But she did. She was conscious of turning white under her discreet cosmetics. Somewhere in the depths of her there had lurked for the last weeks an unexpressed fear of this very thing. A fear that the people who were opposed to the teaching of the Hindu sage, New York's great spiritual uplift of the last two years, were gaining power and beginning to be a menace. And here it was Dexter Manford actually saying something about having been asked to conduct an investigation into the state of things at the Mahatma's school of oriental thought, in which all sorts of unpleasantness might be involved. Of course, Dexter never said much about professional matters on the telephone. He did not, to his wife's thinking, say enough about them when he got home. But what little she now gathered made her feel positively ill. Oh, Dexter, but I must see you about this, at once. You couldn't come back to lunch, I suppose. Not possibly. No. This evening there'll be no chance. Why, the dinner for Amalasuntha? Oh, please don't forget it again. With one hand on the receiver, she reached out with the other for her engagement list, the duplicate of Miss Bruss's and ran a nervous, unseeing eye over it. A scandal. Another scandal. It mustn't be. She loathes scandals. And besides, she did believe in the Mahatma. He had vision. From the moment when she picked up that word in a magazine article, she had felt she had had a complete answer about him. But I must see you before this evening, Dexter. Wait, I'm looking over my engagements. She came to four PM CA four thirty musical Tor Fried Law. No, she couldn't give up Tor Fried Law. She was one of the fifty or sixty ladies who had discovered him the previous winter, and she knew he counted on her presence at his recital. Well then, for once, A must be sacrificed. Listen, Dexter, if I were to come to the office at four... Yeah, sure. Is that right? And don't do anything till I see you. Promise. She hung up with a sigh of relief. She would try to readjust things so as to see A the next day though readjusting her list in the height of the season was as exhausting as a major operation. In her momentary irritation, she was almost inclined to feel as if it were Arthur's fault for figuring on that day's list and thus unsettling all her arrangements. Poor Arthur. From the first, he had been one of her failures. She had a little cemetery of them, a very small one, planted over with quick-growing things so that you might have walked all through her life and not noticed there were any graves in it. To the inexperienced Pauline of thirty years ago, fresh from the factory smoke of exploit, Arthur Wyant had symbolized the tempting contrast between a city absorbed in making money and a society bent on enjoying it. Such a brilliant figure, and nothing to show for it. She didn't know exactly what she had expected, her own ideal of manly achievement being at that time solely based on the power of getting rich faster than your neighbors, which Arthur would certainly never do. His father-in-law, that exploit, had seen at a glance that it was no use taking him into the motor business, and had remarked philosophically to Pauline, Better just regard him as a piece of jewelry. I guess we can afford it. But jewelry must at least be brilliant, and Arthur had somehow faded. At one time, she had hoped he might play a part in state politics, with Washington and its enticing diplomatic society at the end of the vista, but he shrugged that away as contemptuously as what he called trade. At Cedar Ledge, he farmed a little, fussed over the accounts, and muddled away her money till she replaced him by a trained superintendent. And in town, he spent hours playing bridge at his club, took an intermittent interest in racing, and went and sat every afternoon with his mother, old Mrs. Wyatt, in the dreary house near Stuyvesant Square, which had never been done over and was still lit by carcel lamps. an obstacle and a disappointment. That was what he had always been. Still, she would have borne with his inadequacy, his resultless planning, dreaming and dawdling, even his growing tendency to drink, as the wives of her generation were taught to bear with such failings, had it not been for the discovery that he was also immoral. Immorality no high-minded woman could condone. And when... On her return from a rescue in California, she found that he had drifted into a furtive love affair with the dependent cousin who lived with his mother. Every law of self-respect known to Pauline decreed his repudiation. Old Mrs. Wyant, horror-struck, banished the cousin and pleaded for her son. Pauline was adamant. She addressed herself to the rising divorce lawyer, Dexter Manford, and in his capable hands the affair was settled rapidly, discreetly, without scandal or recrimination. Wyant withdrew to his mother's house, and Pauline went to Europe, a free woman. In the early days of the new century, divorce had not become a social institution in New York and the blood of Wyant's pride was deeper than Pauline had foreseen. He lived in complete retirement at his mother's, saw his boy at the dates prescribed by the court, and sank into a sort of premature old age, which contrasted painfully even to Pauline herself with her own recovered youth and elasticity. The contrast caused her a retrospective pang, and gradually... After her second marriage, and old Mrs. Wyant's death, she came to regard poor Arthur not as a grievance, but as a responsibility. She prided herself on never neglecting her responsibilities, and therefore felt a not unnatural vexation with Arthur for having figured among her engagements that day, and thus obliged her to postpone them. Moving back to the dressing table, she caught her reflection in the tall triple glass. Again, those fine wrinkles about lids and lips, those vertical lines between the eyes. She would not permit it. No, not for a moment. She commanded herself. Now, Pauline, stop worrying. You know perfectly well that there's no such thing as worry, it's only dyspepsia or want of exercise and everything's really all right, in the insincere tone of a mother soothing a bruised baby. She looked again, and fancied the wrinkles were really fainter, the vertical lines less deep. Once more, she saw before her an erect, athletic woman, with all her hair and all her teeth, and just a hint of rouge, because people did it brightening a still, fresh complexion. Saw her small, symmetrical features, the black brows drawn with a light stroke over handsome, directly gazing gray eyes, the abundant, whitening hair, which still responded so crisply to the waver's hand, the firmly planted feet with arched insteps rising to slim ankles. How absurd, how unlike herself to be upset by that foolish news. She would look in on Dexter and settle the Mahatma business in five minutes. If there was to be a scandal, she wasn't going to have Dexter mixed up in it. Above all, not against the Mahatma. She can never forget that it was the Mahatma who had first told her she was psychic the maid opened an inner door an inch or two to say rebukingly, Madam, the hairdresser, and Mrs. Bruss asked me to remind you. Yes, 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 Mrs. Manford responded hastily, repeating below her breath as she flung herself into her kimono and settled down before her toilet table. Now, I forbid you to let yourself feel horrified, you know there's no such thing as hurry. But her eye again turned anxiously to the little clock among her scent bottles, and she wondered if she might not save time by dictating to Macy Bruss while she was being waved and manicured. She envied women who had no sense of responsibility, like Jim's little Eda. As for herself, the only world she knew rested on her shoulders.